0: his people, In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 14, Moses wouldn't leave until God had promised that his presence would go with them and God would give Moses rest. God was present in the Old Testament among his people Israel. God's presence has a tremendous effect. In Exodus, the tabernacle was established among the camps of the tribes of Israel It was separate, it was removed, it was unapproachable without extreme care to obey the law of God. In Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu approached to worship God with unauthorized fire to worship in a manner and means that God had not approved of and God struck out against them in judgment. God was present among his people Israel. In John 1 verse 14, the word who is God became flesh and dwelt among us, or as the King James reads it, and tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And God was present in Christ among his people, the disciples. In Matthew 28 and verse 20, The Lord Jesus made a promise to us that he would always be with us, his disciples, the church, even to the very end of the age. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus promised us that the Father would send us another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with us forever. God is still present in the person of the Holy Spirit, dwelling within each true believer. God's presence among us is still And God's presence has an effect. I want you to notice from our text for today, there are three phrases and the third one is repeated. But in verse number 33, he says, With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Again, in verse 33, he says that great grace was upon all the believers And then in chapter 5 and verse 5, and then again in verse 11, he says, Great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of Ananias and Sapphira's deaths. God was and is still present among his people in great grace to transform us, in great power for witness, and in great fear following his judgment. God's presence among us has a tremendous effect, or it should. So first of all, there is great grace to transform us. God was present among them, and there is evidence of his great grace to transform them. We can see in verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Once they and we were sinners separated from God. Once those believers there, once before they were sinners at enmity, at war against God. Once we had no desire for God whatsoever. But now, but now by God's transforming grace, they're believers in God and we are believers in Christ together. Now that we have been filled with God's Holy Spirit, it was not because of anything they did or no value, no works, no reason of our doing or their doing. It was God's coming among them and among us. It was God in grace who made us alive in Christ Jesus. It was God in grace who opened our understanding. It was God in grace who gave us the faith to believe. It was God in grace who, when we believed, filled us with his Holy Spirit. Just as surely as Christ was filled with the Spirit for his ministry, so also we, as believers in the Lord Jesus, are filled with his Spirit. But not only for ministry, but also for transformation, the ongoing process of sanctification. It is God in grace who continues to increase the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to continually transform us more and more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was transforming them into Christ-like men and women. They continued, secondly, in verse 31, to boldly speak the word of God. Once the twelve disciples had fled into the night rather than stand with Christ in His suffering and shame. Once they had hid in the upper room for fear of the Jews with the doors locked. But then the Spirit of God had come upon them at Pentecost. They had begun to stand and preach the gospel. Opposition had risen, threatening them with punishment. But in spite of the real fear of man's disapproval, And in spite of the real fear of the pain of a beating in the Sanhedrin, they continued to speak the word of God boldly. From frightened and fleeing to boldly proclaiming, God was present among them and in them. God's grace was transforming them to Christ-like men and women. God's grace is also at work in us, transforming us. God's grace is present turning us from fearful and unsure into those who speak the word of God boldly. God is present among us and within each of us in the filling of the Holy Spirit, which works to transform us into bold witnesses for Christ. There's something neat about seeing somebody who comes and prays in much fear and trembling about going out to preach the gospel and to look across the street about two hours later and to see that young woman walk up to somebody and boldly hand them a gospel tract and engage in a conversation. God's grace is at work to transform so we speak boldly for Christ. The third evidence of God's grace among them in verse 32, they were of one heart and one soul. The reality is that sin separates and divides us not only from God, but also from each other. Sin destroys and sin tears down. Sin not only caused Adam and Eve to hide from the Lord God in the garden, but also to hide and conceal themselves from each other by covering themselves with garments of leaves. Sin causes disunity and sin tears apart fellowship. Sinful mankind can only, by the common grace of God, be married and have certain level of marriage success. Men and women outside of the faith can perform partnerships and alliances and agreements, but invariably a great deal of time is spent to ensure that the agreement survives. Contracts are written with great care by lawyers who get paid a great deal of money to make sure the contract is loophole free, and so nobody can get out of their responsibility. Why is that? Because sin always tears us apart, sin always brings in division and disunity. a sinful nature in each party strives for self first, pride seeks for me first, and you later, if at all. Sin tears us apart, but then, but then God begins to work among us, and God's grace deals with the issue of sin in each of us God grace. God's grace works to humble each prideful heart. God's grace works to transform us into his Christ-like followers and disciples. As each one is reconciled to Christ, then we are also reconciled to each other. And there is unity. United to Christ, we become united to each other from divided and argumentative and self-seeking to being united in one heart and one soul together around the Lord Jesus. And that is only possible when God is present among us. That is only truly permanently possible when God's grace is at work transforming us into Christ-like men and women. So you say, why then do we see Christians divided? Relationships in churches torn apart and seemingly irreparable. Pride in one or both members is fundamentally at the root of the problem. Somebody will not listen to somebody else. One person will not seek forgiveness from someone else. One one or both or many will not admit that there is sin at the base of the problem. There's pride there. There's unconfessed sin. And that's why churches get torn apart. And the reality is we are all sinners saved by grace. We are all a part of the body of Christ, not because any single one of us deserved to be here, but God in grace has brought us in. And God's grace ought to humble us and bring us down when we realize that each is worth more than the other. We prefer the other above ourselves, as the scriptures call us to do. Pride in one or both members makes unity Difficult, but God's grace, when it is allowed to have its transforming effect, humbles that pride and makes us see what the other is in Christ and makes us realize who we truly are in Christ. Sadly, the problem, the reason why we have disunity in churches is sadly that not everybody who names the name of Christ truly belongs to him, as this passage makes very clear. But you know, the good thing is, the great thing is God's arm is not shortened. When we see church, if we look around us, praise God that we as a church enjoy a measure of unity. Praise God that we enjoy a measure of good fellowship, each with the other. Yes, there's there's always going to be tensions. We're all none of us is perfected. None of us is where we should be in our walk with Christ. And there'll always be friction. But as long as God's grace is allowed to override and overrule and work in our hearts, we can all be humbled and we can all realize that God can transform us and bring unity there. God can also save those who are not truly saved. Fourth evidence of God's grace, that none kept the possessions as only for their own use in verse 32 and then verses 34 and 35 and 36 and 37. We have this tremendous example of sacrificial love and sacrificial giving for each other. One of the themes that kind of overrides that whole passage is love. They looked after each other. They cared for each other. There was a love that was expressed from one to the other as they saw each other's need and provided for it. Early on in life, we are all self-seeking and striving to gain personal advantage. But now in Christ, we're living or we are to live in sacrificial love, willing to suffer for the benefit of the other. That is God's grace, God's transforming grace at work among them. And God's transforming grace is also at work amongst us. God's grace was transforming them into Christ-like men and women. Great grace was upon them all. Listen, brother and sister in Christ, be encouraged. Examine your own heart and your life, and you'll see the evidence of God's grace at work there as you look back over the last year and years before that and see where you were in years gone by. See the appetites and desires. See the habits the things that you had a craving for and see how God is steadily changing. His grace is transforming you more and more into the image of Christ. Look around you and notice the work of God's grace in the lives of others and encourage them by letting them know that you can see it even if they can't. For me personally, sometimes the work and progress seem so slow. And I begin to wonder, is God really at work in me? But then I begin to realize, I look back, I can see the desire for certain things that are not conducive, not helpful for my spiritual growth. Those desires are fading. I begin to realize also there's an increasing desire for the things of God. He is at work in my life, transforming me. And like watching grass grow, right? You think, does grass ever grow? You go out there and you look at it, it just seems to sit there. And you come back two weeks later and it's mowing again. So you mow it down and you wonder, does it ever really grow? And you go around that circle and all of a sudden you realize the grass is growing. And even though it seems so small and so slight, when you look back over a bigger period of time, you suddenly realize there's growth there. Unfortunately, the sins are more like weeds. They grow so much faster and so much higher. But you know, God is at work in your life. Brother and sister, look back. Take a look at each other. You say, why do that? Number one, to encourage them. Look, when you see in someone's life, you see an increase in the desire for godly things, you hear in their prayers, there's more of a godly tone and and emphasis in their prayers. Come alongside them and encourage them and say, hey, you know what? I can hear what you're saying. I can see the things that you're, you're working on. And I can see God's grace at work in you. He is changing you and you're growing. One of the thrills about being a pastor is you get to see that a little more than maybe some others do. And it's a thrill to look and see in your lives, to see that God's grace is at work and you are being changed. That's so encouraging. Do you have a love for the people of God? That's God's grace. Do you have an increasing sensitivity to sin? That's God's grace at work. You wrestle with sin. We all do. But that wrestling, the fact that you don't like sin in your life and there's a a struggle and a strive to put it off and get rid of it, that's evidence of God's grace at work in your life. You see folks on the train or on the street or maybe in the workplace and you grieve wondering if they've ever heard the gospel. That grieving in your heart is the work of God's grace in your life, changing you more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So great grace was upon them all. Notice, secondly, great power. There was great power for witness. God was present among them, and the evidence was great power to witness and testify of Christ's resurrection. It was not cleverly designed, powerful programs that brought great revival at Pentecost, where thousands were saved. It was not Peter who had a Ph.D. in theology or management. It was not his great public speaking skills to communicate the gospel in a surprising, fearful, forceful way. It was not the apostles' great intellect. Remember the Sanhedrin? The most educated, a lofty of us all, the men in the the land, and they're looking down at Peter and John. And they're fishermen, not known for their great skills and intellect. And thinking, their tradies, their roughnecks. And yet what they said was they realized that they had been with Jesus. There was a power upon their words and upon their work that testified it wasn't them. The power of God was at work among them. Now in Luke 24, 49, 24 and verse 49, Jesus promised the disciples two things that are inextricably linked together. And you got to catch them both together. He said, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in Jerusalem until you are or will be clothed with power from on high. The promise of the father is the Holy Spirit and the clothing was the power. Those two things go together. When the spirit came upon them, they would receive in and with his presence the power of God to live, to love as Christ loved, to witness to Christ and the saving grace of God. And then. Excuse me, in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus repeated the the same promise to them, expanding it to describe the scope of their witness for him. That he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Peter, sorry, power would come when the Holy Spirit had come and filled them later on. In Acts 3, we saw a couple of months ago that Peter says, it's not our power or our piety that made the lame man walk. It was the power of God through the Holy Spirit at work. He is the author of life. He made the lame man walk. The power that these men were clothed with is not something special or magical that can be bought or sold, as Simon the magician found out later in the book of Acts. When the gospel is preached in power... In the power of the Holy Spirit, mere men speaking God's holy word, God himself imparts his power to save the lost, to transform sinners into saints, to make spiritually dead men live. That power does not reside in their being apostles. Stephen, who was not an apostle, had great power on his ministry. When you're engaged in preaching and teaching the word of God, and you go home, and this happened to me just last week. And I was trying to think about the message that I preached last Sunday. And I couldn't remember it. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, I wonder if they remember what I said last Sunday. I couldn't even remember what I said last Sunday. And I'm wondering, how is it going to have an effect? How is it going to work if I preach every Sunday? And, you know, if I asked you all to put your hand up and give me one point from the sermon last Sunday without looking at one of those note sheets I gave you, I wonder how many of us could do it. You say, what's my point? My point is that when the gospel and the word of God is proclaimed, the power of God rests as that word is preached and as it's vocalized and it's heard. It's not my abilities as a preacher. Praise God that changes people. Nobody would get changed if it was left up to that. It's not our slick program. It's not all kinds of manipulation and gadgets and gimmicks. It's not the, the way we set up church with colors and lights and sound and smoke or anything like that. None of those programs have any effect. Jesus could stand on the beachside and preach and people got saved. Later on in the churches in persecution, they stood inside catacombs, places where they buried people and they preached, and people were changed and saved by the grace of God and the power of God. The power is in God's work in the heart of man to take the words of the gospel, the truths of scripture, and apply them in a way that only he can apply them, and so they work and have an effect. God was among that early church God is still among his church today. And when God's word is preached and proclaimed, when God's word is shared over a cup of coffee, when God's word is shared across a back fence, when God's word is put on a piece of paper and handed to someone in the street, there is a power that comes into play that's beyond the paper and beyond the sound of a voice. It's God's power to change. The power was not something conferred by human action. The great power with which both the apostles and all the believers spoke the word of God was the power that comes alongside the Holy Spirit's filling. In Romans 1.16, we read that Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul writes something amazing in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 and 4. He wrote a lot of amazing things, but this is one of them. Paul writes that he was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. That's got to be the worst example of self promotion we've ever read, right? Did you see Paul's business card? Paul the Apostle. Conference speaker specializing in weakness, fear, trembling, and unimpressive speech. I mean, he wouldn't get many bookings. if you ever want to get a really good take on this, Alistair Beck does a great little thing about Paul the Apostle. The the elders in Corinth go to the airport in Corinth and pick him up and they bring him home and they bring him home and, and the wife of the one elder says, Well, what's he like? And the guy goes, Oh brother, he's weak, he's unimpressive, there's nothing striking about the man whatsoever. You know why Paul was like that? Why did God choose a guy like him? Because the power of God was at work in his life. And when he preached and proclaimed the message of the gospel, it wasn't his oratory ability that convinced men to believe. It was the power of God that was working when he proclaimed the gospel. The evidence of God's Holy Spirit among them was God's presence. Among them was the power with which they spoke and witnessed to Christ's resurrection. And a great tragedy in the church is that men who have a natural ability as orators to speak and to preach with or without the accompanying power of God over their ministry. And they've been elevated to positions of leadership and prominence in the church with disastrous results we far too quickly buy into the world's thinking that it's the A-plus student that God has clearly chosen. We buy too quickly into the idea that you've got to get a guy who can shout and hammer and punch this pulpit and all that other stuff for God to really use him. And I'll tell you right now, one of my greatest fears, at the end of my ministry, I'll look back, I may have learned something about oration but know nothing about God's power at work in my ministry. My prayer, my plea as I come here Sunday mornings, and if you're in the prayer meeting, you'll hear me pray more than once that God will fill me with his spirit. That when the message is preached, the word of God is preached, it's got nothing to do with the preacher And the ability to communicate, it's got everything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in both the preacher and the listener, so that God speaks to both of us. Peter was an ordinary fisherman, filled with the Spirit, clothed with power from God. That's why his ministry was successful. Paul was unimpressive in his speech, weak, fearful, trembling, but... Sorry filled with the Spirit, clothed with power from God, and that's why his ministry was successful. The evidence that God was among them was the power of God at work as they testified and witnessed to Christ. When you and I speak the truth of the gospel message, at the Spirit's leading And by his enabling in our own fear, trembling and weakness, we can know that God is present. He is at work. God is the one who speaks into the heart of the listener, awakening and opening their hearts to hear and to believe. It's not about natural ability. It's about spirit filled obedience. It's not about theology, degrees, education, training. It's about submission to the spirit of God in our lives. I read the other day with amazement, Martin Lloyd-Jones, known to be one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He was called into ministry and his fiance Bethany, says, can you preach? And he said, no, I don't know. I think so. He preached, I think, two or three sermons before he began his ministry as a pastor. Never had one day in a theology college. He was a doctor, a, a medical doctor by profession. And yet God's power was a work over this little Welshman. And when he preached, God's power went to work in the filling of the Holy Spirit, not only in him, but also in his listeners. And he saw something close to revival spread through the area where he witnessed and preached and served. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my heroes, never spent a day in Bible college, was anything but impressive. He was like five feet tall. But when he stood up and he began to preach, and and we we all know Spurgeon had a brain like an encyclopedia, like a modern computer. He was an incredibly gifted brain. But if we stood here and extolled all the benefits of Spurgeon's words and his his thinking power, he would if he was here, he would be absolutely outraged. Because as he walked up the steps, the Pope was up in their church like a big man out in the middle because it had no uh, electronic amplification. Right. It's a great big, huge building, five and six thousand people sitting in the all over this building to hear him preach. He walked up a circular set of steps up to a, a Podium, out in the middle of the room, he had the most use of the acoustics, and he would bellow with his great lungs, but as he walked up the steps, you know he said on every step as he slowly trudged up because he had gout through all, most of his body, he said, "I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and he prayed and he pleaded with God every step up that circular staircase until he got out to the pulpit and he began to preach that God would work. Because he knew, even if nobody around him could figure it out, he himself knew it was the power of the Spirit of God that was working when he preached. It had nothing to do with the preacher and everything to do with God. And brothers and sisters, that's the evidence that God is present amongst us when the Word of God is preached. People are saved. Lives are changed. The description of the early church was clearly Christ continuing his work. There's spirit-filled believers. There's bold speaking. There's a unity of heart and soul. The apostles and all of them are testifying with great power on it to Christ's resurrection. There's great grace upon them all. They're being changed. There's a tremendous display of selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like love over that whole church. It's a marvelous thing to kind of look at. And you love reading through the book of Acts and you see that early church and all of its freeness. It was uninhibited by all the stuff that we have to be involved with now as a church. They just simply preached the gospel and people got saved. They never even printed out tracts. They just stood there and preached and proclaimed. But the sad thing is when the work of God begins to gain ground, when people's lives begin to be changed, when the gospel is bearing fruit, new creatures in Christ are being born and growing in grace, when the believers are enjoying unity, love, care, and blessing, somebody does not like it. Just as surely as in the Garden of Eden where Satan saw The God and the man and the woman in beautiful harmony and fellowship, walking and talking in the cool of the day together. He had to step in and do all he could to destroy it. And so here we read the next verses. I don't believe there should be a chapter break between verse 37 and verse 1. They they, they hang on each other. Verse 1 requires verse 37 to work through in, in the force of its message. So we see, 30, there is great fear after God's judgment. What happened? Well, We're going to try and unpack it sort of chronologically rather than textually. I sat down in my study and started putting all the things it says about them and what was going on and tried to put it in as close to chronological order as possible. And Barnabas's gift is really the beginning of the story. It's an expression of his faith in God. The nickname that the apostles give him and bestow on him suggests that there is a degree of favor and notoriety experienced as a result of his, Barnabas' sacrificial gift. Barnabas sells a field. He brings the money. He gives it to the apostles. Selling and giving the proceeds, he was forfeiting any support or income he would have gained from it. By sacrificing such an amount, he's trusting God. And what motivated and moved Ananias and Sapphira to such an action? What drove them? Well, in verse, verse 3, Peter's all-important question remains unanswered. He says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? In other words... What motive was at the root of such deception? Well, it's not too hard to see that greed was clearly a motive that was involved. He and Sapphira wanted to enjoy some of that same notoriety without the sacrificial giving up of a valuable piece of land and the income they would have derived from it. Make no mistake, when Barnabas sold that piece of land, got all the money, and he brings it, and he drops it at the apostles' feet and steps back. His income is laying there, somebody else's. It was a massive step of faith. He didn't have all the social programs that we have today and all the sort of support systems that we've developed. He was throwing himself entirely upon God and saying, here's the money from that land. I'm setting myself free. And the wonder, I'd love to do a study on Barnabas and take you through the New Testament and see how he pops up here and there and the influence of this godly, encouraging man and how God greatly uses him throughout the course of the rest of the New Testament history. He pops up just a few times. But you go, wow, what a guy. More importantly, far more importantly from everything I've just said, what a God who was working through him. Greed was a motive of their sin and their deception and their hypocrisy. From Peter's words, we're given, who is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know that Satan also had a role to play in their sin. Peter says, Satan has filled your heart. It's the same word for filling of the Holy Spirit back in verse 31. It's the very same word. When you go back to the story of Judas, and Satan entered and filled Judas, and he went out to betray Jesus, it's the same word again. How can it be that Satan filled the heart of a believer. Is it possible for a believer to be demon or devil-possessed? And the answer is no, absolutely not. It's not possible. The rest of the scripture tells us that very clearly. So then you say, well, how can it be? Well, my argument would be very simply that they were not true believers. You say, it's a bit harsh. Any other proof? Well, if you take a look back in verse 32, there's a very interesting phrase that comes up in verse 32, he says, the full number, okay, now the full number of those who believed. He didn't say the full number of the church, he said the full number of those who believed. And in the fact of using that who believed phrase, it qualifies, it modifies or explains what he means by the full number. He doesn't mean the whole number of everybody is associated with the church. He means the full number of those in that church who believed. And if you're out last Sunday night, if you're out tonight, you'll hear about the difference between the visible church and the invisible church. True believers mixed amongst other unbelievers making up the visible church. And so those two, Ananias and Sapphira, are part of a group. And I believe there are others who were not true believers either gathering with the church. Luke used that phrase to explain what he meant by the term, the full number. Well, we know from the book of James, chapter 1, that sin happens when we are lured and enticed by our desires, and the desire conceived gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. Their desire for the same fame and notoriety that Barnabas had gave an opportunity for Satan to come alongside and just start to whisper in their ears and to fill their hearts. And there's a purpose in it, he says, uh, to to lie to God. That's the purpose It's there. It's an infinitive of purpose. Their desire for the same fame and notoriety that Barnabas had gave an opportunity for Satan to whisper in their ears and later to fill their hearts for the purpose of moving Ananias and Sapphira to steal from God and then lie to God to cover their sin. Now, I want you to notice very carefully in verse number 4 of chapter 5, the land remained Ananias's. Well, it tells us two things, very important. The church was not practicing an ancient form of communism or communal style living. Okay, So individual members retained their ownership, their control of their assets but many of them were willing to sell them as the church had need. Okay, so they they were all together. They said that they they regarded nothing as their own. That's a great attitude to have, right? And they they were willing, when necessary, to go out and sell what they had and bring the money so the church could use it to support the poor and so on. In verse number 1, the Bible says, of chapter 5, Ananias, together with his wife, sold a piece of property. It becomes very clear from the text that she had full knowledge and full agreement to what he was doing. I remember in those days, as a woman, I don't think she could legally own land. I may be wrong on that, but my understanding of the culture was he owned the land, not her. And so when he sold it, he didn't need her permission or her blessing to do it, but she had full knowledge, and clearly from the text she had full agreement. Okay. You may be asking yourself right now, how can it be considered stealing if the land was his at his disposal, as Peter himself said? Now, this is a very important point. The point comes out in the words he kept back. Okay, that comes out in verse number two. There, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself. The word literally means they stole, they misappropriated the funds. They. To use our phrase from today, they embezzled. That's what it means, what the word says. Okay. It means oh, the word is also used in Titus 2, verse 10, and the servant is described as one who does not pilfer or steal from their master. So their intention was to steal. Well, you say, how can that be? If the lamb was his at his disposal, well, how could he be stealing? I mean, he sold it, he decided I'm gonna keep. 50% for me and give 50%. Look, what was wrong with that? Nothing, if that's what he had committed to do. And almost all commentators would agree, and I think they're right, that the, the whole context supports the statement that in order for it to be a theft, there must have been a prior verbal commitment by Ananias to give the whole amount from the sale of the property. If there hadn't have been then Luke wouldn't have used the phrase, they stole, which wouldn't make any sense, right? So there had to be some kind of uh, commitment that when they sold the land, all the money would be given. So maybe they stood up in church and said, you know what, apostles and brothers and sisters, uh, supplier and I, we're going to sell our piece of property in Moe, and we're going to bring all the funds, and we're going to lay it all here, and the church can take all that money and use it. You say, that's not in the scripture. You're right, it's not. But without that assumption, the the word just doesn't make any sense. Why would Luke choose that word? In order for it to be a theft, there must have been a verbal commitment by Ananias to give the whole amount from the sale of the property to the church. But he kept back a portion of the funds and brought the balance. Notice verse 4. Again, Peter says, you've lied. It was a lie. You say, how can it be a lie? He didn't say it to God. He said to the apostles. This is very important. When they were giving that money to the church, to the church to use, who were they giving it to? The apostles, disciples, deacons, finance committee? They didn't have one, but no, they didn't. They gave it to God. It was money that they they said, this is for the Lord's use. When you put that money in the bag on Sunday morning or you use your electronic transfer, don't think of it in your head. You're giving it to the deacons to use. You're giving it to the elders to distribute. What you are doing is you are committing that money into the Lord's care for the Lord's use of it. And he leads and governs through a diaconate and an eldership. And we make decisions in that room back there once a month to what to do with the money. Where does it go? How is it to be used? But that money is given to God. Okay. So Ananias lied to God because he made a declaration. The money, the whole lot would be given, and then he brings only a part of the proceeds. And we read in verse 5, Ananias heard Peter's words. He fell down, and the word literally means he expired. He breathed his last, and that was it. He was gone. Ananias died. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in. She's asked about her knowledge of the funds, and also she is struck down. Now, I've purposely left Peter and his words kind of in the backdrop of the story. Peter spoke under the Holy Spirit's inspiration. I'm absolutely convinced of it. How would he know what was going on unless the Spirit of God gave him insight? Does that ever happen today? Oh, actually, it does. I was uh, at a prayer meeting with some local pastors. And one of the pastors was sharing a story. He said, there's a man in his church. And he said, we're talking about he met him. There was something that just just didn't ring right and he went to the man he said you know what i i I perceive that there's sin in your life that needs to be dealt with and the man's oh no 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 no! i'm a godly man i i nothing no and the pastor said okay so he went away and for a number of days he fasted and he prayed and he pleaded with god to help him understand to perceive it correctly and he said he got a vision now this is his words, so I'll just state exactly what he said. He got a vision that this man was sitting in a room with a pair of uh, virtual reality goggles on and a computer screen in front of him, and he was engaging in Internet pornography with this virtual reality setup. He called the man in, and he said, you know what? I believe that this is what you are doing, and he spelled it out in black and white, and the poor guy only passed out. It was exactly what he was doing. And he said, you've got options in front of you. You can repent of sin or you need to leave. And they went through the whole discipline process, and that's kind of the rest of the story carries on from there. He said, yeah. And I can tell you there have been times in my ministry when talking to somebody, and I can't explain it, but there's a little alarm bell, for lack of a better term, that goes off in the back of my head that says, Something's not right. And I was in a situation where that was happening for months on end. Whenever I was with a certain person in our church, there was an alarm bell going off and it got louder and louder. And I spent time, the elders and I spent time pleading with God that he would show us what it was. And I never saw it until it was too late. And sadly, there was a big division that came out of that situation. But Peter was there, and I'm convinced with all my heart that he, the Spirit of God gave him an understanding in that moment. That's what he's doing, and Peter just spoke up. And I'm convinced it was in front of the whole church because there were young men there, there were others there. When the Bible says when they all heard it, they all saw it, there was a great fear that came across the whole church. But the reality is you want to get this clear too. Peter wasn't responsible for his death. He made the statement and God struck Ananias down. The judgment was God's to make and God exercised it. Peter did not strike him down. God did. God was the one who had been lied to. God was the one who had been stolen from. And if you read very carefully the text, he says it's the Holy Spirit that you've tested to. It's God you've lied to. And he makes a very incredible, interesting connection. God is the Holy Spirit. And the church will spend the next 300 years working through understanding how the Trinity works. But it's a very early statement. And he's saying, you've tested the Holy Spirit. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And God acts. And here's the point out of all this. God takes sin seriously. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not buy into the thinking that the New Testament presents God 2.0, a kinder, gentler, softer God. God is absolutely holy, just as Nadab and Abihu were judged in our perception maybe severely for offering unauthorized and strange fire, and God struck them down. So God strikes these two down for their sin against him. Just as God struck down Uzzah. I read this story as a kid. I just could not. I thought, Lord, that seems so harsh. Uzzah, you remember the story? They put the Ark of the Covenant up on the ox cart, and they're walking along, and the ox cart's going along, and the ox cart's rumbling along behind them. And the oxen stumbles and the cart jerks and the Ark of the covenant comes looming over. It's falling over. And Uzzah's like, oh no. And he reaches up and he puts his hand out and he pushes the Ark back up onto the Ark's cart and God's holiness strikes him dead. Just as surely as God struck Uzzah dead, so also God in righteous, holy judgment strikes down these two who have sinned against him. God takes sin seriously, brothers and sisters. God does not wink at sin. And our world may have redefined sin a million times over since it began. And no longer do we call sin sin, but God has not changed, brothers. And you say what's the message out of all this? beware the wiles of satan he's got six thousand years of practice attempting and deceiving better men and women than you and i years later peter i think he's in chains in rome and he's writing to his beloved church and he says be sober-minded be watchful Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I'm convinced. As Peter was sitting there writing that out, He pauses for a moment. His pen comes up. Maybe he sticks the end of his pen in his mouth like some of us do. And he begins to think back. And he remembers that day standing in the Jerusalem church. And all the others are gathered around. And Ananias is lying on the floor, stone cold dead. And he's just gotten finished saying, Satan has filled your heart. And now the aging disciple and apostle in love for the church that he spent time witnessing to and building up. Working with, he says, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary prowls around seeking someone to devour. Brothers and sisters in Christ, watch out. We are all, every single one of us, prone to let jealousy, to let greed, let envy creep in. And the devil sees it and all he sees is a green light like waving a red flag in front of a bull and he comes charging towards it and he doesn't barrel up and shout in your ear do this he comes alongside and very gently and very softly says hey why don't you do this hey you know go ahead sleep with that guy nobody ain't gonna notice you know what steal from the company who's gonna see And all of a sudden, the motive, the desire that's in our hearts and our minds for self, and the devil seizes an opportunity and he begins to work away. And sin creeps in. And the problem is that God occasionally, very severely, for the benefit of the whole church, judges. Twice in my lifetime I've been nearby when God has acted in judgment in a church. Twice we saw an elder removed from a position in a church and put out of the church in great shame. One was a financial thing. One was a sexual thing. And the church was just devastated by it. And you know what came over that church in the months and the weeks following or weeks and months following those events? There was a sense of the holiness of God that hung over that church. People realized This is not our church. This is God's church. This is not our place. This is his. And we are here for him. Not he here for us. Yes, that is true. He is here for us, but not as much. We are here to serve and honor and worship and glorify him. And God will not tolerate sin amongst his people. There was a great fear over the whole church. So what's the message for us today? Listen, brothers and sisters, God is present here today among us, here and now. There is great grace upon us to transform us and make us like Christ, to transform us into his image. There is great power from God that we might speak with boldness and God will work. Isn't it a great hope to know whenever you start sharing the gospel with your neighbor? It doesn't depend upon your perfect point-by-point explanation, illustration of the gospel. It's the power of God that opens the heart and the mind of that listening person to hear and believe and understand. There is power. There will also be great fear following God's judgment. And I would suggest this. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord greatly as a preventative to falling. In other words, be so in awe and amazed at God's person, His works, His character, His holiness. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on Christ. See Him above all. Cry out to God in prayer that God will continue His gracious work to transform you and your life and those around you. Cry out to God that He will work in the life of every single person in this church to make us more like Christ, to change us, to use sickness and death, financial problems, relationship problems, whatever they may be. God uses those tools to make us like Christ. Cry out that God would work. Secondly, look for and encourage one another when you see the evidence of God's grace in their lives. You have no idea how encouraging it is that someone walk up beside you, put their arm around your shoulders and go, hey, just want you to know, the elders have noticed what you're doing and they're encouraged and they're praying for you and they're watching you. Keep going. Don't give up. I had a pastor do that to me once. It's just such a boost to go, Yeah. The church is behind me. They're praying for me. Brother and sister, get alongside one another and encourage one another. Step forward and speak God's word, no matter how weak and how fearful and how much you tremble. It's not up to you to save them. And God uses weak and fearful speaking to save because his power is what works to transform. Fourthly, guard your heart with all diligence. Watch your motives. I, the, me, as much as everybody else in the room. What's your desires? What's your motives? The enemy of your soul is on the prowl and he's looking unceasingly for an opportunity to tempt you to engage in sin. Resist. Cry out to God in those moments for strength. The wonderful thing is that God is always there, he will always provide the strength and the way of escape. Sadly, brothers and sisters, we're too busy looking for ways to do the sin and the ways to get out of it. God's present among us, brothers and sisters. Great grace, great power, but also great fear. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and we'll be done for the morning. loving heavenly father we thank you this day for your grace and father we were singing amazing grace how sweet the sound of saved a wretch like me father we were once lost but you by your grace have found us and brought us under the sound of the gospel you have worked in us to open our eyes to hear the message of the gospel father thank you for grace Thank you for the grace of God that is still at work in each of us to transform us, to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, for the life of every single person in this room. Do what is necessary today to make us more like Jesus. Father, we would like to be like him, to speak like him, to love like him, to pick up our cross like he did and shoulder it, to fix our eyes firmly, on the glory that lays ahead and endure what is never is necessary that we might follow him all the days of our life. We might serve him. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that every single person in this room would present themselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord our God, holy and acceptable to him, which is our reasonable service of worship. Father, I plead with you that you would do a work in us. Father, there is pride that easily gets rooted in. And when pride gets in, division quickly follows. Father, I pray for your grace to be upon this church. Father, I plead with you that your grace would continue. Father, thank you for the measure of unity that we have as a brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I pray that you would protect us and keep that unity. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that you would work in the lives of every single person in this room that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and know that unity in an ongoing manner. Father, I plead with you also. Lord, I'm convinced in my heart that there are some in this room within the sound of my voice The Lord are living in sin, unconfessed. And Father, whether they realize or not, it is eroding away their lives. They've lost their joy in the Lord. They've lost their love for the Lord and for each other. Father God, I plead with you that you would, in grace and in mercy, awaken them to their reality of their sin. Work in their hearts, O God, that they would put that sin away. They would cry out for forgiveness. They would renew their faith and their love in the Lord Jesus Christ. They would repent of that sin and follow Christ. Father, I plead with you that you would do a great work in this church. Lord, I'm convinced the revival doesn't begin until we see these things happening first. Confession of sin, humbling of hardened and prideful hearts. Lord God, you are still here with your church. We know from the promise of Scripture, Jesus said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, I'm convinced that he will keep every single promise he ever made. And so, Lord, I pray for a work. I pray for a work of your Holy Spirit this day. Let it start in this church and let it work its way out that we would see men and women one for Christ. Lord, we ask you these things and we plead with you for your help and for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.